0: The Old Pilots Plane Tales. The Andy Anderson interviews continue with the story of him joining the Royal Australian Air Force and moving across to the United Kingdom to begin his wartime service. I was employed as an aircraft engineering apprentice and that was considered in Australia a uh, vital uh, job to have. So joining uh, the services was forbidden. Now, that meant that I had to uh, work very hard to break my apprenticeship. And in those days, apprenticeships were very valuable things to have, and uh, they weren't easily broken. In the end, I managed to convince my parents that uh, that's what I wanted to do. And having made sure that the management of the company I worked for, which was McRoberts and Miller Aviation, that I would be better employed in the services than uh, as an apprentice. Eventually the managing director, one uh, Mr. Horry Miller, rang my parents and they agreed that we could cancel the uh, apprenticeship which had run for two years at that time. So having had my apprenticeship cancelled, I then immediately raced to the Air Force and and signed up. So it was some months after that that uh, eventually I was taken out of civilian life and uh, sent up to uh, an airfield called Pierce RAAF Station. And that was, for the first two months, almost pure square bashing. Uh, with very strong sergeant majors to look after us. Then after that, we then started flying training. Now, I was sent from Perth across to Adelaide to an airfield uh, called Parafield, and there I started my training on Tiger Moths. And it was an absolute delight. Uh, You know, when I got airborne, I thought, you know, this is exactly... What I wanted out of life, and fortunately for me, it all came terribly naturally. And uh, seven hours twenty minutes later, I was sent solo, and uh, even that was even nicer to be all by myself. I must tell you a rather funny story. On the uh, in in training, we had one training captain, who or I suppose that's what you call him who uh, used to take his um, pupils up for his test just before he sent them solo and to make sure that they were perfectly confident to fly solo he would extract the control column from the front cockpit of the tiger moth and throw it out and the student would then be left thinking he was entirely in control of the aircraft In fact, what the chap did was just to cut off a broomstick and paint it, and and of course, he kept the control column to himself and threw the broomstick out. Now, um, I suppose the other amusing part during my training was that on very strong and windy, gusty days, uh, flying was canceled. However, on one of these days when we had an extremely strong wind, the CO decided he'd show off and take a Tiger Moth into the air and fly it backwards. And uh, he demonstrated this to uh, all the pupils. And he took off and and climbed up and then throttled back and uh, reduced his airspeed and gradually the aircraft flew backwards across the airfield, much to the amusement of everyone. Now, having finished flying training on Tiger Moths, Uh, I must point out that the aerobatics were the things I enjoyed most of all. Barrel rolls and uh, imagining myself to be a First World War pilot flying against uh, Richthofen and people like that was wonderful. (laughs) Anyway, then we were transferred to an airfield at uh, Geraldton, which is north of Perth on the west coast of Australia, uh, for our advanced flying training. And that was done on um, Avro Ansons. Rather clumsy aircraft, twin engine, piston driven, mostly uh, fabric and wood. (laughs) But if you could handle an Anson, you could handle most things. So, I mean, from that point of view, it was good. And uh, we did all our advanced training, like bombing and things like that from this this, this um, Avro Anson. We had about 30 people on course and um, out of that most of us most of the uh, pupils were given their wings at the end of that course. There were about six people chosen to become uh, commissioned officers and fortunately I was one of them which was very good. I'm, I must tell you an amusing incident that happened that Geraldton. We had a, uh, a passing out parade, of course. Our wings were presented to us. And the CO, who was a very well-known uh, aviator from the First World War and very well-known in Australian aviation history, his name was uh, Norman Brearley, and he was, uh, became a um, group captain and was in charge of our AAF Geraldton. Now, at the passing out parade, all the, uh, the pupils were marched past the saluting dais. My mother, who was very helpful in my career, uh, actually came up to Geraldton, which was quite a journey, and was present for the passing out parade. Now, the amusing part of this story is that there is always, uh, in any parade, a marker. And usually he's the guy that stands at the right hand end of the column so that everyone else could march according to where he wanted them to go. So when you started off in your march, the sergeant would always call by the right quick march and that meant that you would take your bearings from that marker. When it came to a uh, a saluting dais, the sergeant major would call out eyes right, and everyone except the marker would turn their heads right to the saluting dais. So I was the only one that wasn't allowed to turn my head to the right, because I had to keep my eyes straight ahead so that the whole parade would know where they were going. My mother, who was sitting in the front row among all the VIPs, saw me, and of course she said in a very loud voice, that's my son, he never does what he's told. (laughs) And of course it drew quite a laugh from (laughs) from (laughs) from the audience. So after Geraldton, I was then uh, anxious to get overseas, of course, as we all were. But unfortunately, I was posted to a uh, navigation school as a staff pilot. My job was to fly navigators or pupil navigators uh, around so that they could take star shots or whatever it was and find their way home again. And I was simply a pilot for them. So that gave me an opportunity actually to take a navigation course. So I signed on for a navigation course with these um, trainees and uh, I had that additional qualification in my logbook. So after some months uh, flying as a staff pilot, I was eventually posted overseas. The route to get to England was over the Pacific. At that time, and we're looking now at late or oh, mid-42, 1942, uh, the Americans were, uh, had their presence in Australia. And we obviously treated them well because by the time we got to America, the Americans were all over us. They, they really loved the Australians. You couldn't possibly walk into a bar uh, without them buying you a drink. I mean, you didn't have to put your hand in your pocket for anything. We arrived at San Francisco, and then we on-trained, as they say, and had a very slow trip across America to Boston. After some days cooped up in this train, everybody was getting very fed up. So the CO, who was a, uh, a flight lieutenant guy, but he wasn't an air crew, he was ground staff, he was in charge of this, uh, this uh, on train across America. So by the time we got to Salt Lake City, uh, he was most concerned about how fed up everybody was, cooped up. So since it was a long layover in, uh, in Salt Lake City to allow other traffic to go through on the same railway line, he decided that he would let the crew out of the train and have a march through Salt Lake City. Seemed a nice idea. So he managed to recruit a a band. It was the local fire brigade band, and they turned up at the railway station. Then he got all the air crew out, the band in the front, the CO, who was this flight lieutenant guy, uh, then the officers and... Then the other ranks, the sergeants, were all lined up, ready to go. And so the band struck up, and off we went marching into Salt Lake City. I think we'd covered about two blocks, and all that was left of the marchers was the CO up front. All the rest had peeled off, and they'd jumped into the bars and been welcomed by the Americans, and it took two days to wind, to round them all up and get them back on the train again. So <laughs> there was a little extra delay there. Anyway, we, we got to uh, a camp near Boston, Camp Miles Standish it was called, and another good fortune struck me in that some of our people on this draft caught scarlet fever. Now, that can be transmitted easily. So the whole draft of crew were uh, isolated in Camp Miles Standish. Now, after a couple of days, the Americans took pity on us, so they gave us all a test. That is, some people had it, some people didn't have it. So they sectioned the people who didn't have it and said the best thing for you to do is to have a bit of a holiday and, uh, and until these other people recover. Now, that was magnificent because we were not allowed to escape from Camp Miles Standish and we were entertained by people in, uh, in Boston. And uh, some people called Mr. and Mrs. Pettit asked me if would I like to stay in their magnificent mansion and that was really quite a pleasure. They had two beautiful daughters, and you can imagine it. uh, at the age of 20, I I was uh, uh, enthralled with the whole thing. I think the one mistake I made was uh, when they took me to their very upmarket tennis court, and they supplied me with a racket and the right shoes, and, and we played tennis for a bit. And then... All the rest knocked off and left me on the court by myself. And of course, being young and uh, vigorous, I wanted a little more tennis. And there I made my big mistake. From the tennis court, I called up to them as they were all sitting in rows on um, on, on the seats looking over the tennis court. I called up and said, would anyone like a... I, I do not say it. Would anyone like a knock-up? <laughs> no. <laughs> that was a dreadful thing to say and, of course, I didn't realise and suddenly the whole place went deadly hushed. <laughs> and I was very embarrassed. I I, I walked off the court. <laughs> anyway, the rest of the time was spent magnificently in boston i thoroughly enjoyed it i had my 21st birthday as a guest to harvard and they had an an internal uh, party for that night so somebody raked around and found me an ordinary civilian dress and uh, i turned up took my uniform off uniform off and put on civilian clothes and joined in the celebrations and it was absolutely wonderful And I wasn't caught out until late in the evening when I walked into the pool room and uh, threw some billiards onto the table and started playing billiards with three balls. And of course, somebody else walked in and said, where did you learn to play billiards? We only play pool here. And at that time, the person that had invited me had actually been back to his room dressed himself in my uniform and, <laughs> and appeared in front of everyone. <laughs> so, therefore, that was a sort of grand end to a perfect 21st birthday. Right, we then took a train down to New York where we were put on very fast, um, uh, what was then a very fast ship called the Mauritania, and that sailed solo across the Atlantic idea being that it could outpace any U-boat, so it wasn't included in a convoy. Um, As you know, big convoys only um, progressed at the speed of the slowest ship, and the slowest ship was round about eight knots, so the Mauritania steamed along and we had lots of Americans and uh, and the, our small draft of Australians going over to the United Kingdom. We arrived in Scotland and we on-trained down to Brighton and that was our, what they call our PDRC, our Personnel Reception and Departure Base. So uh, we were put in hotels Very comfortable hotels for the officers, and, uh, well, equally comfortable for the uh, sergeants as well. Uh, We then waited there for a posting. We're going to leave it there for now, and in the next playing tale, we'll hear how Andy gets on on his wartime squadron.